0: Okay, that is it, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, please, and I was not kidding about the 71 verses, okay, so we're doing the end of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, and the start of chapter 8 all today, and so you know that I can take three verses and go for 50 minutes, right, so this sermon is seven hours, and we will be leaving (laughs) this afternoon, okay, so hunker down, it's going to be good. We are right dab, smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts, and here's what we're seeing. We're seeing the church explode and grow, and incredible stories happen. Last week, Anthony introduced this really good illustration I thought was very helpful about uh, when you first get into a relationship, you, everything is great, right? You have that honeymoon period, and you don't really know the person until their first big fight. So last week, I think we viewed, and Anthony said, the first big fight, right? Um, today, we get to view the, verse, the first big loss, Okay. Um, so so in the context of the relationship, like you really begin to know, okay, we fought now, how do we handle conflict? But then how do you also handle in any relationship? But now within the church, how do you handle when things go poorly? Like that, that first big hurt, that first big loss, and that's what we get to be a fly on the wall for. And what we'll see next week is what does the relationship look like? After the big loss, like how do they handle the fight? How do they handle the loss? What does that mean for the church? and I 'll give you a little glimpse into the next week. This loss leads to probably up to this point the greatest explosion of the faith in anywhere we've seen in an acts and we've seen up to three thousand people added in a moment, and then I would say what happens next week as a result of what happens this week? We see the greatest explosion uh, that we can see, honestly, maybe in church history so um, All of this story today is concerning one guy. Now, ultimately, God, yes, and we will talk a lot about him because he is the one orchestrating this entire thing. But it's going to focus on this guy named Stephen. Now, if you don't know who Stephen was, you can go back and listen to last week or just go read the passage before this one. But Stephen was one of seven Hellenistic believers, right? So they were Greek-speaking Jews that were part of the faith, and they approached, with the counsel of other Hellenists, approached the apostles and said, hey, guys, you know how we're caring for widows, we're caring for orphans, we're caring for people? Well, the Hellenistic, the Hellenist widows, they're not getting any love. And so they approached the apostles, and they solved this issue by appointing seven Hellenists to go and serve these people, to care well in the midst of everything happening in the church. Stephen was one of the seven. Now, Stephen is going to come in power today, because oftentimes, if you just listened to last week, you know, a lot of what's shared about Stephen seems to be, well, he's just a really big servant, kind of a behind-the-scenes, stays behind uh, the show and doesn't do it. Today, he's going to kind of have his coming-out moment, where he's going to preach. There's going to be signs and wonders. It's going to be all of that, but it's really going to be the loss of his life that the church will remember 2,000 years later, because of the impact that it has upon our church and our culture and our world today. Okay, so uh, turn to uh, verse, or, yeah, verse 8 in chapter 6. My mouth is really parched this morning, so if I take sips of water, I apologize. Number 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia... And Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say, said that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Okay, so a little context for where we're at, right? So Stephen, this, this, this servant, right? This one of the seven is now uh, proclaiming signs and wonders across the land. He's preaching the gospel. People are taking notice and this begins to upset the powers that be, namely the religious powers, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of these parties that have a vested interest in the, in, in the faith of Christianity, this early thing they called the way of it not growing, Right? Uh, all of their desire was to see this thing get stifled because, at every level, the farther this thing pushed into culture, the less power that they would have. And so, what they begin to do is that they look at this guy, Steve, and they say, okay, we got to shut this down quick. Right? Like, it, especially because, let's remember, this guy is now a Hellenist. He's a Greek speaking Jew, so he is going to invest in a whole new people group, right? So, this is going to spread to a whole new group. And they just see this thing and say, this is not good for us. And so, They say, how do we get him? Now, in the midst of that, they begin to look at his life and they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we seem to not find a way to dispute anything he's doing. That the wisdom and the spirit with which he is proclaiming these truths, the way he's doing these things, that he's saying, you know, we want to get him, we just can't because whatever he's doing, it's just really good. Now, I, I just loathe loathe Tom Brady, right? And if you don't know him, he's a quarterback for the Patriots. And I just can't stand his face, right? Yeah, a little amens. Let's get some amens in here. Where's my boy Asher? I'm sorry, bro. I love you. Um, Look, he's got six Super Bowls, so you can't be too upset, right? I just, I can't stand him, but he's maybe the greatest quarterback of all time, Right? So I, I can dislike him and be like, ah, I, just, I don't like you as a person. Your face is weird. But as a player, you're maybe the greatest quarterback of all time, right? And I have, to, I have to concede that. So any of my arguments about him as Tom Brady as a football player, they don't actually add up. Because if you look at every stat, he's just the man. Now, this is the same thing. Like, it truly is the same. They're looking at Stephen's life. They're like, man, the signs, the wonders, they're incredible, they're undeniable. The power of God is surely with you. Uh, what you're saying, we, we can't dispute that either. So the only way for them to tear this guy down is through false accusation and lies. And So okay, what, what can we do? So they go to some of their other people and say, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're to stir something up against this guy. And so you just kind of get these little backroom whispers of, hey, okay, we're going to say that, um, okay, what he's really saying is this, and, and he's, he's against the law, and he's against Moses, and he's against the temple, and he's against us, and he's trying to subvert us, and, and he's just out, and they just stir up all this stuff that just is not true. Now, what we're going to enter into, and that was all of chapter 6, all of chapter 7 is Stephen's response. It's the longest recorded sermon in the entire book of Acts. And he is going to, in some ways, systematically answer some of these false accusations. But more importantly, he's going to speak on a macro level of, a level of saying, listen, all of what you're really saying in the midst of all, it's Moses, it's the law, is you just hate Jesus and what he's trying to do here. Like, you hate the fact that there's this people, the way, the Christians, who are impeding on your power. Who are impeding on your say. So when, we, when they're saying, okay, he's attacking the law, it's like, no, no, we teach the law. Like the law is our thing. So he, if he's attacking it, that undermines us, the priests. Okay, if you attack Moses, Moses is like our chief patriarch, that's our guy. Like he brought the law. So if you're tearing him down, distorting him, that throws us off as well. And, and more, most importantly, if, if you're saying that the temple is going to be torn down, that it's not important and significant, well, that's, we run that show. Like, that's our home turf. That's our place. That's where people come to hear us teach and us speak and, and, and dictate what it means for you to be the people of God. And so at every level, they are hating the explosion of this faith. And so what they're really trying to say the whole time is we hate what's going on here. And I think Stephen sees through all of that. And so his entire sermon is what I've called the case for Christ, okay? Clever, Right? came up with it his entire sermon is a case for Jesus right he's gonna talk about all these things and hear me if you don't if you haven't read a lot of the Old Testament we are gonna burn through because he preaches this sermon and he's preaching it through a lens of assuming everyone he talks to knows their Torah knows the entire Old Testament back in front and so there's not a ton of commentary here that I will try and fill in for us Now, a couple things before we jump into this text, uh, jump into the sermon, is one, notice that it will be bookended in your verses. If you go back and read, it'll be bookended with that he was full of grace and power, the presence of God and the Spirit. And then at the end, it says he's full of the Holy Spirit one more time. and book ended with this idea to remind us, let us not exalt Stephen as the one who's actually doing the great thing that this is the Spirit of God working in and through a man that he might be faithful to the gospel. Because I think if we're all honest with ourselves in here, outside of God, we can do no good thing. Right? Outside of God, I shrink away and say, I will sit over here, I won't love you very well, I'll just focus on me. But Stephen, full of grace and power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, accomplishes one of the, most great, the greatest feats we'll read in our entire Scripture. And the impact of this moment... And how it sets a trajectory and an explosion of the church beyond the walls it has been confined to up to this point is incredible. Okay, So that's one. The other thing I want us to notice is how much scripture he uses. His sermon is just chock full with verse after verse after verse referencing the Old Testament. Now again, going to what these guys would have known, what the priests would have known and said, Listen, I'm going to use these because you've not seen them or interpreted them or maybe even read them correctly. And so he uses his scripture and for encouragement for us as we look at this text to say, okay, man, that'd be good. Like if I could kind of step up to the plate this way, okay, full of grace and power, full of the Spirit, do I know what the Bible says? Like have I poured through this thing? Have I read it? And so when people come with false accusation against it or against our faith, I could say, well, you know, actually, that's not at all what it says. So important. Nugget of wisdom for all of us, and then lastly, I am not going to read every verse because we would literally be here for seven hours. So, I've concocted a hopefully divinely inspired plan that I came up with this morning on the drive-in. Okay, so thanks, Spirit, for taking six days for that one. But actually, that sounded like I was being mean to God. God, I'm a, I really do apologize. If that was mean. I love you, Jesus. Um. What we're going to do is we're going to talk and and look at the the response of Stephen to the high priest in the Sanhedrin through the lens of a trial because ultimately that's what it is. Um, And here's what's amazing is quickly Stephen goes from defendant to prosecutor. Like He's going to say, okay, let me talk to some of those things, but at the end of the day, I'm coming at you. Like, this is going to be about your heart. This is going to be about what you miss. You're going to be put on trial at this point. And so that's the way we're going to flow through this. I'm not going to read the scripture, but I encourage you to go back. I'm going to reference ones. You'll see all that. And we're going to do this kind of, uh, you know, I've been watching. uh, Never mind. But we're going to do it as a a trial. and, And hopefully it connects with us in a way that then we can walk away and say, okay, these are some of the rails that it means for our church in this context today to be faithful by the power of God. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me, here we go. Uh, opening argument, okay, if, if you've ever watched a movie, and I love, I love, like, Law and Order, I love A Few Good Men. I, don't, I mean, if you're probably at 20, you haven't seen A Few Good Men, which, shame on you, right? Um, but, but, but I love this. So, opening argument, verses 2 through 8. I think he comes in, the enters, and he says, uh, guys, and, and I'm, I'm going to be him, all right? So, uh, let me just bring Abraham up to you. Let me start off with Abraham. You know Abraham, the, the patriarch, right? Like the father of our faith. The guy back in Genesis chapter 12. Like you know your Torah, right? The guy back in Genesis chapter 12 whom God called and said, I will call you out of this land and I will send you to a new land. A land that you do not know. But there I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You remember this guy? The, the guy that we all know. Abraham, right? Father of many sons. And sons, father, Ab- I don't even know the song. But you know what I mean? You guys, surely you remember Abraham. Now, do you realize that when Abraham was, was called, when, when God was assembling his people, assembling Israel, assembling you, right, assembling us, that he was doing so way outside of a temple, right? There, there, there was no engagement there. So, so you're tied to this space and this one idea that, it, it, that God is worshipped here and the presence of God is here. Well, if that were true and God was so confined to a certain space, well, what was that interaction with the one with whom we call Father Abraham, the, the patriarch of, of all of this? Do you remember he, he sets him up in a place and then what does he do? He says, I'm going to send you to a promised land that is yet to be determined by you, but I know where you're going. There will be a true place of worship. You think it's the temple. I'm here to tell you it's not. So he starts off his argument. And he moves on, he calls his first witness in verses nine through 16. He says, guys, I'd like to bring Joseph to the stand, okay? And mind you, Joseph is dead. So this is, again, just dramatization, okay? Joseph, let me ask you a few questions. Um, Hey, why don't you tell me a little about your your childhood? What'd that look like? He goes, wow, you went there. Um, So so, uh, my father was Jacob, See, and his father was Isaac, and Isaac's father was Abraham. So I'm like the great-great-grandson somewhere. I'm like the great-grandson of Abraham. So as this lineage came down, you see what happened is, is my father had 12 kids, and, uh, and I had 11 brothers. And guess what? They, they didn't like me very much. And so uh, in, in, the, in a moment, they sold me into slavery. I said, they sold you into slavery? Yeah, they sold me into slavery, my own brother's. I said, okay, well, well, that's, that's interesting because what I know about the rest of your story is somehow and at some point, you become the Pharaoh's right-hand man. H- how did you go from sold into slavery into Pharaoh's right-hand man? He says, well, let me tell you, Vince. Or Stephen, sorry. <laughs> Broke character for a second. Um, let me tell you. Well, there was all these crazy events that happened, these miraculous and crazy events, and I, I ended up in prison. This is driving me crazy. Um, I ended up in prison, and, and I befriended the kind of the chief jailer. We became friends, and we started talking about life and about God. And, and you know what? It got to the point that I had so much faith in the prison, they appointed me, a, an inmate, to be the chief of the prison. I became the chief jailer of that prison. I said, that's crazy. It's crazy. He said, well, what happened then? He says, well, in a stroke of God's sovereignty, the chief baker and the chief butler of the pharaoh uh, they both get sent to prison with me, right? And so I get to befriend them, and I start talking to them about, about their lives and about God and about all these things. And then especially there's this moment where I do some dream interpretation for them. They're having these dreams and visions, and I get to speak to them and, and clarify, this is what God is saying. And so the, the chief butler goes back. Actually, sorry for the chief baker, but he didn't make it. They killed him. But the chief butler goes back and begins to work for Pharaoh again. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh begins to have these visions and these dreams, and he doesn't know what they mean. And so the chief butler all of a sudden remembers, wait, that guy Joseph, um, he knows how to interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh sends for me, and I go, and I I meet with with the Pharaoh, and I tell him, well, this is what's coming. There's a famine coming, and we need to store up now. Otherwise, the entire nation is going to be in deep, deep trouble. And so that... One moment was significant enough in my relationship with Pharaoh, where he asked me to essentially become his right hand man, to, to take over the distribution and the, the care of our nation as it grew and as people came and said, We need that we stepped in, and I was the guy to oversee that whole thing. So, wow, that is a crazy rise to power. He says, Yeah. And I began to ask him some more, ask more questions and things like so. So are you telling me that um, you were rejected, but somehow God in his sovereignty appointed you to be the one that would save and redeem your people? And he, he said, well, I guess if you put it that way, yeah, it's exactly what happened. You see, um, as the famine began to strike, my family, I, I called them and they came to Egypt and, and I let the, and you know, I kind of had this coming out moment. Hey, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. It's your son. It's your brother. Look what's happened. And, and, and forgiveness swelled up in my heart. And relationship was reforged. And it was beautiful. And Israel began to come. And, and they got the blessing that was happening because of the vision that God has given me. And I, and I asked them, I, I said, So you're telling me that very specifically that your family, whom you called, whom rejected you, that they returned. He said, Yeah, I guess you could put it that way. He said, They, 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 they couldn't deny it, and so they, they came. I said, Wow, that, that's an incredible story. Joseph, thank you for your time. And he stepped off. And I, and I, and I talked for a moment in commentary and, and, and reminded us, and remind us right now. But again, as Joseph's being called, listen, all this is happening in Egypt. This is God's work in this foreign land that is not the promised land. It is not their home, and yet God works in places outside and everywhere, not including or subjected to any one place we can confine him to. So he says, well, thank you. That was Joseph. Let me call my next witness. And this one was the big one, all right? This one, verses 17 through 43, he says, I'd like to call Moses to the stand. And he calls, his Mo- calls Moses, and they're just talking about Moses, and Moses, again, this is, this is their guy, right? Like, he, he, if you don't know much about Moses, if you're not versed, if you're here if you're, not, if you're here and not a Christian, Moses was a central, central figure of the Old Testament. He is the guy whom God chose to give the law to him, the whole Ten Commandments thing, that's Moses' story. Okay, And so Moses is a central factor for everyone. So you can imagine in the room as this trial is going and Stephen has the audacity, especially as a Greek, to be speaking about Moses you can, you can kind of sense the tension in the room and the blood begin to boil on behalf of the priest. He says, I like to call Moses up and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to break down your life, Moses, and, in three 40-year periods as that's kind of even how scripture often does it. But let's talk in that lens. So Moses, in your first 40, can you just give us some context for, I mean, we, we know these stories about you, but how did you end up there? Let's talk about your first 40 years and, and some Moses well. You know, I was, um, the, the earliest memory is I'm, I'm, I'm floating in a basket down a river. Right. And uh, and all of a sudden I look up and there's this woman and she grabs me, you know, and so I, I was real content just, you know, doing my little river cruise. And then all of a sudden this woman grabs me, brings me into her family. Little did I know that woman was the daughter of Pharaoh. Right? So, so I, I all of a sudden go from this this just alone Jewish boy floating down a river and now I'm royalty because I'm adopted in. I didn't deserve to be adopted in, but I'm adopted into royalty, and that was none not of my own doing. And I raise up in this family. I say, okay, well, that's, that's also a pretty incredible story. God's sovereignty, yes, he says yes. So I said, let's focus on the second 40 then, Moses, and this is your story Continue. I said, why don't you talk about your second 40 years, maybe some formative things for your life. And he says, well, let me tell you two stories. He says, uh, so I, I began to, I found out who I was. I realized I wanted to go visit my brother's, and so I travel and I end up and I see uh, an Egyptian man attacking one of my Jewish brothers. And I don't, I don't know, it I just welled up in me that I had to do something and so I attacked my Egyptian brother and, and I took him down, I struck him down and I killed him. And I thought, okay, this is, this is an opportunity for them to see like I'm one of you, like we're in this together. So I've stepped in and interceded on your behalf to save you. But uh, let me reference verse 25, breaking character for a moment. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Moses, so you're telling me, Moses, that you believe that by you doing this, they would see, oh my gosh, okay, so this man has been sent to save me, but they missed it. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I said, and you said you had another story. He said, yeah, I have one more story. He says, just the next day, I'm spending time amongst... The Israelites amongst my brothers, and, and I come across a, a handful of them. And you know what? They're quarreling, Stephen, quarreling. They're fighting. They're upset. And I, and I approach them. I say, guys, why, why are we fighting? Like, we're, we're, we're brothers. Let's, why the quarreling? Why the fighting? And they responded to me. They said, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? so I said, again, you came in to bring peace and restoration. You came to fix broken relationships. And they said, well, who are you to talk to me and try and shape us? Is that what they said to you? He said, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. They, they rejected the one who was sent to save them. Okay, so it's, it's getting really interesting, Moses. So um, let, let's talk about the last 40 years of your life then. So, um you had kind of a profound moment kicking off that last 40, didn't you? He said, yeah. So I'm walking along, and uh, all of a sudden there's a bush that's on fire, which isn't crazy because I've seen stuff on fire, but this fire didn't stop, right? So if you've ever seen a bush on fire, it eventually is not on fire. I said, that, yes, that's true. That's science. <laughs> and and, and he, says, he says, well, this bush didn't go out. I said, it didn't go out. He said, it didn't go out. He said, then let me, let me raise you one. There began to be this voice that came out of a bush, a talking bush. Would you believe that? And I said, no, I wouldn't believe that. But I wouldn't believe the fiery bush thing either. See, this theoretical conversation I'm having with Moses right now. It's funny. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, yeah, a voice comes out. And, and guess whose voice was? it was? It was God's voice. And God was telling me, Stephen, that I I had to go, and I had to go set my people free. I had to go back for my people. And I had to go into a place that I knew would not be safe. I knew I had to go into a place where, man, what I was about to do would be hated. I knew that I was about to have to go into a place where this surely was going to probably end bad for me, but I still went out of obedience to what the Father had said. So I go to Egypt and I, I talk to my old pal, the Pharaoh, and I say, listen up, Yahweh, the, the God that we've spoken about, he, he wants his people to be let go. You know all the, the Israelites that have been enslaved, that you've, that you've put your foot down on, that you've forced to work for you? It, it's time that they go. And Pharaoh says, no, am not going to do that. And so, uh, long story short, I don't want to borrow you, Stephen, but uh, 10 plagues later, finally, Pharaoh releases my people. And then in this incredible act, we're fleeing through the wilderness, we come upon the Red Sea, and in this incredible act of God's power through me, I don't know why, but through me, I part the Red Sea so our people can walk on through, get to the other side And it closes back up on Pharaoh and his men, and the people of God are redeemed. So I said, okay, so what you're telling me is God raised someone up, right? Raised someone up with royalty in their background, but called them to something with which no one would want to be called to, and yet they were obedient unto the Father, and you were used to save and redeem an entire people. He said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. So, wow, that's a fascinating story. Where have we heard that? Right. And so I imagine Stephen, as he's calling up I and mean, he's doing this trial, he's coming as a prosecutor. That more and more, hopefully, right, the hearts of the priests and the minds of the priests are connecting the dots to what Stephen is trying to say. Do you guys not see that you're freaking out about Jesus right now? Do you not realize he's been there since the beginning of our entire existence? And you see it in every story, even amidst the heroes that you call fathers of your faith. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so continuing on, in a few verses, again, breaking character. He says to them, do you not realize that is this man, Moses, who said, God will raise you up for a prophet like me from your brothers. Again, he says, uh, as they enter into the wilderness, that instead of wanting Moses the deliverer, instead of wanting God ultimately deliver, they say, no, we'll take some idols instead. And so in the wilderness, not only do they just reject Moses, the one who, ra- who was raised up, they don't just reject God, the one who has done the saving. They say, we want to take it a step further and we're going to raise up idols for ourselves." Specific ones, ones like we've made, like golden calves. Ones that have been made by others, like Moloch. And we're going to worship them, and them instead. Because even though you've done all this, we care too much about our lives, our desire, and our power. And I said, Moses, I mean, does that not sound similar to some people in the room today? And all eyes turned to the high priest who have rejected Jesus, who have rejected Stephen's message, who have rejected the message of the church, the people raised up to bring a message of restoration, redemption, and peace, and said, no, we don't want that. Instead, we want our own idols. Idols of power, idols of status, idols of wealth. That's what we will worship. And so in his closing argument, Verses 44 through 53, he's like, look, you've, you've missed Jesus. You, you've missed Jesus, guys. And he's been there the whole time. And all the stories you read to your kids, you've missed Jesus. Because he is, he was Abraham, raised up, called to a place that was not his own. That he would come here and secure a promised land for his people. He, he was and is Joseph, who was betrayed by his own brothers during his life, cast away, that he would be raised up, go through a crazy series of events to raise to power, that in that power he would let it go, that people would be saved. He's the greater Moses, who, although royalty, laid down his royalty, that the sake of a people to be redeemed and restored, and then yet was rejected that people might worship idols instead of the true idol, Jesus Christ. You see, this whole time, it's been Jesus, and you've missed him. So, you'll see, you're going to try and confine the same Jesus who has lived outside of your structures, outside of the way you think relationships going to work, in his own power dynamic, in his own kingdom ways, and you're going to tell, him, tell me right now that you can put him in this box, in this place at this time. Is that what you're saying? They're saying, yes. And he says, one last argument before I close here. And says, listen, God has existed across time in multiple places, in tents, tabernacles and temples, and nothing contains him. So he lands, and I'm going to read these last five or six verses beginning in verse 48. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he just gets no more kind of just like dropping little nuggets for them to kind of pick up along the way. He says, listen, at the end of the day, I'm telling you right now, you know what happened? You killed the one who came to save you. You killed the guy. The one hope you had, you destroyed. You flogged, you beat, and you crucified. But there's good news. Because he's still alive. And that's why you're still angry. Because your idolatry, your love of self is overwhelming what you know to be true, which circles all the way back to the beginning of this discourse. They could not deny what they saw, so they had to come up with lies. So let's look at their response, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And, a, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So the story wraps up. And again, we have this first huge loss of the church. We're, we're this, this I mean, this guy who is just faithful full of the Holy Spirit, allowing God to work in and through him and doing incredible things for the sake of the glory of God in this world. And they kill him again. They kill another man brought, raised up to proclaim salvation, to proclaim freedom, to proclaim restoration. And they take his life. See, what, what probably really caused him to lose it was when he finally looked up to heaven and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of Yahweh. You see what he was doing was he saying, Jesus and Yahweh equal, in the same place, the same arena, the same life, God, three in one. And they could have none of that because there could be no equal to Yahweh because they missed Jesus. And so they rush him. Now, notice the, the, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, are not the one who rush and kill Stephen. No, no, no. It's the angry mob of Jewish followers that were present in that moment who lost it and came after him. Probably so brainwashed by what their own chief priests had told them about the lies of who this Christ was. And so they take out this one. Now, here's what I find so profound as we finally land this ship. Stephen unknowingly from my vantage point, becomes the last and final witness to Christ. Because does his story sound at all familiar? A man preaching the gospel, doing incredible signs and wonders amongst the people, people gravitating towards him, getting saved, getting enlightened, being free. People don't like that. So they come at Stephen, and what do they have to do? False accusation, because real ones would never stick. This doesn't sound like anyone. They bring him into a trial that he did not deserve to be in. They lob stuff at him that is not true. They say that he said things about the temple he did not say. And then they stone him, they kill him, much like they killed our Savior. And amazingly, probably unknowingly, as Stephen dies, he says two things that both our Savior has said. Father, to you I commit my spirit, and Father, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. They know not what they do. I think Stephen inadvertently becomes this penultimate, modern moment celebration of Christ and what he has done that the people will maybe say, "We didn't we just do this? Didn't we just kill someone who came to tell us good news? That hasn't gone very well for us. Maybe this would be something that would awaken their hearts and souls. So this man gives his life That others might be raised up. Does this sound like anyone we know? This is the story of Christ. Living a life we could never live, a life of perfection, dying a death that all of us because of our sin, that we deserve to die. And then he defeated death on the third day. And that's what's causing all this ruckus. And I tell you, it should be causing a ruckus in our world today and amidst our churches as we sing, praise, worship, and live for him because he is alive. So, so this, this moment, and we're going to see it, is going to cause the church to be scattered, which would seem like something that would destroy its movement. But let us remember Acts 1-8 that says that this was the whole plan the whole time, that this gospel will go from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's happening, and they're doing something they thought would destroy this rising up faith, but instead it's going to cause its explosion. They thought by destroying Jesus, by killing the Savior, that they would finally quell this little movement. It did not happen. Why? Because God brings new life where there is death. He brings resurrection, he brings power, and he's doing it still today. So I land finally in this last moment of application and say, what in the world does this mean for us? Because not many of us are standing before courts right now. How do we look at this text and say, what does this mean for the church in 2017 in Flagstaff, Arizona? And I just have one question that really shapes this, and it's have you, have we, have I missed Jesus? Like, have we missed Christ his life, what he's about. Now, to two different crowds in the room, if you're here and you're non-Christian, to answer that question, it'll be a lot easier. Have you missed Christ? I don't know. Do you believe him, love him? Does he know you? Do you know him? If the answer is no, then yes, I'm telling you, you've missed Jesus, and he wants you badly to the point where he gave up his life that he would know you forever. Okay? He loves you, and his truth, his life, his death, and his resurrection... I mean, it's not just, bu- this is true, and it can be true for you. Do you or have you missed Jesus? And if you have up until this point, I said, like I said, talk, when Drew was up here, for 18 years, I missed it, and I heard it over and over and over, and the evidence was always around me, friends and family constantly telling me, and I missed it until I didn't. And I'm praying, I've been praying all week that this would be a week where there'd be a good handful of you sitting in here and today would be the day that you stopped missing it and you saw Christ and had an encounter with the living God. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, a couple sub-questions. One, uh, I think we often want to fancy ourselves as Stephen in this story. You and I, I think, a very many times act way more like the Sanhedrin. We act way more like the chief priests who raise up and desire our idols more than we desire the idol. And so a question for us, if if we're Stephen, or sorry, if we're the Sanhedrin, a couple things. What false idols have we raised up? What power structures do we cling to so strongly that when Jesus impedes on that, we start freaking out? And we lash out and we say, ah, that's too much. Which are those for you? And What do you do about them? Um, what, what power do you not want to lose? Like, what, what self-sufficiency is what I'm getting at? What are the things we're like, no, I, I've got this. Let me worry about me, that you're clinging to, that Jesus like, no, no, no. This faith is not about you depending on you. It's about you depending on me. That, that's why I've been, I've been doing this throughout history, putting my name, putting my story written on the lives of all these people throughout all time. Okay. Now, if, if we're Stephen, um, if we want to fancy ourselves, Stephen, which I think there's truth to that. Why? Because if you're here and you love Jesus, guess what? The Holy Spirit's in you too, okay? Like the Holy Spirit, God's presence lives inside of you to work and to be like him in the midst of a crazy world. Okay? So with Stephen, do you, as the Bible tells us, keep in step with the Holy Spirit? Do you walk with the Holy Spirit? Do you engage God? Do you, are you consistent in your relationship with Him? Do you trust Him that in moments that scare the just stuff out of you, that God will be there with you? That you would be able to be proven faithful, not because of what you've done, but because of what He is doing through you? With the Holy Spirit, you believe He lives in you, He resides in you, He came for your benefit, your conviction, and your work. Okay. And then uh, lastly, um, you know, when, when persecution raises up, what do you think you'll do? It's just a helpful question, I think, for us to ask. Just to get our mind churning around it. Because honestly, and we've said this before, I think we might be headed towards more of that in the future. So what will you do? And I'm telling you, if you wait until the moment that it's happening to then decide, it's going to be exponentially more difficult. But let us be a resolved people who truly believe the gospel so no matter what comes, we prove faithful because of the power of God. That we would be full of the Spirit and not full of ourselves. Which, confession, is all too often a truth for me. I'm not... Be full of the spirit, full of ourselves. Amen. please, even today, as we sing and as we respond, entreat the Lord God, who is alive and active in this world, to come and overwhelm us and fill us that whatever pours out is only stuff that he would want to bring to this world. Amen? Jesus loves you guys. He loves me for nothing we've done. What's incredible and the last thing I'll say about this story is amidst all the persecution, we heard last week that priests were getting saved. These same guys that are part of these councils, there is no one that is outside the reach of God. Doesn't no matter what you've done, where you've been, and hear me, what you'll do from here on out, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and sufficient even amongst our junk. So wherever you're at, let us adore and celebrate and not miss him this morning, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the faithfulness of a man like Stephen. God, we celebrate and we acknowledge. God, that's, that's your doing. I can only imagine what it would have looked like for me in that moment. And uh, it probably wouldn't have been great. My guess is I would have shrunk back. My guess is I would have, I don't know, lied, said things to, to preserve myself. Lord, I, um, I don't think that's because uh, Stephen is a better man than me or, or, or has more willpower or is stronger. Or, or I think it's just because he trusted in your power. I think he knew you and knew you were with him knew that you heard him, knew that you engaged with him, knew that it was you that was doing the work and flowing through him. And Lord, I I, I just pray that for all of us this morning, God, that we would be a people that if we do anything well, it would be just to trust you and not ourselves. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing every time it seems, God, even in our own minds, That this won't be good for the church or this won't be good for the mission or I don't understand. God, that we would know you are sovereign and you are proclaiming and moving and shaping this world and culture. God, that you are the one that is gaining and taking back enemy territory. You are the one that is winning. And so, Lord, let us just celebrate that today as we sing, as you've won our souls, as you continue to win souls. That you would be heralded and glorified in this place. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.